Good morning, everybody. I uh, hope everyone is having a uh, great, great week so far. And I hope uh, I hope the last couple weeks haven't uh, haven't been too hard on everyone. So I'm glad to see things are starting to open up. People starting to go back to work. Um, I know people have been going stir crazy, so it's good to it's good to start opening things back up again and let those who uh, at least those in the low risk categories, uh, I think, begin to uh, exercise normal lives. So um, I think we need it. So, all right, a couple questions. Uh, do you, did you listen to the interview between Whitney Tilson and ACG Analytics on Real Vision? If so. Basically, Whitney feels the prefs are a bad investment in that they double at most, but can also just sit at this price for a really long time. He also thinks the commas need to go to $10 for any action on the prefs, which would take many years, he said. Additionally, he thinks commas are super risky and only worth allocating 2 to 3% of your portfolio. Any thoughts? Whitney seemed to be less bullish than anything will get done, and Gabby didn't really push back at all. As the owner of both preferreds and the common, I put this interview in the pressing category. Well, so it's, I would note that uh, Whitney's analysis here is really is, that's what Bill Ackman thinks. Um, and that's what Bill has been saying for a while. Bill is an early investor in the common uh, stock, not the preferreds. Everyone knows Berkowitz and Perry Capital and uh, John Paulson were all in the preferreds early um, and there's been a lot going back and forth about that. So I know, I think Whitney was originally in the Befurge and switched to the Common. So here's the thing, with, here's my main objection to that analysis. Um, it's going to be very hard for the GSEs to raise money for an offering with these lawsuits overhanging them and the potential liability of these lawsuits. So you have to settle with shareholders at some point or win in court, which is going to take years, in order for this to really move forward. I, I don't see a scenario, I don't think anyone's predicted one, where the GSEs can go out and raise $230 billion with a potential $200 billion liability. Right? I mean, no one, who would invest, in, who would invest into that situation not knowing what's going to happen with um, I think it's $36 billion of preferred stock. Why would someone invest in that without knowing, having any clarity whatsoever on whether there is liability, there isn't, if so, how much, damages, no damages, we don't know. So, you know, that analysis assumes that nothing changes with a preferred stock. And I, I just don't see that scenario um, as a likely one. Um, do I agree about the two or three percent of your portfolio? Sure, it's I mean that's a, it's a very common the which is why we sold most of the common stock that I owned a while back is because it is a very risky investment. It's it could be a it could be a, a worth ten you know ten cents a share after all this is done. We don't know because we don't know how the capital raise is going to go. We don't know turn. We don't know anything yet. So yeah, it's a very risky investment on the on the. On the commons, there's a immense upside and there's also immense downside. So keeping it a relatively safe positioning portfolio is is not a bad idea. You shouldn't have fifty percent of your assets in something like this in anything really that involves a court outcome because you just never know what's going to happen in court. So, uh, and this is a 
I mean, if we're being honest, this is a once-in-a-lifetime situation, right? This has never happened before, and there's a very good chance it never happens again where, you know, two entities that are quasi-government entities are taken over, and, you know, it's just, you know, I don't know of any other entities that exist like this in the U.S., so, you know, this may be another 100 years or something like this happens again, so there is no roadmap. You know, we have, you know, similar roadmaps and other... In other instances, when other financial institutions have run into trouble of what was done, but we don't have anything concrete when it comes to something like this, and the government is so intimately involved in the runnings and the operations of these of these enterprises, right? So, um, you know, this is a once in a lifetime. Um, uh, I don't want to say opportunity; that's the wrong word. It's a once in a lifetime situation. Um, <coughs> so, uh, you know, I, I. I I, I, you know, I guess all I can say is I prefer the preferreds. I think they're the safer bet of the two. Um, I think that the lawsuits need to be settled before they can go out and start raising hundreds of billions of dollars in capital. And I think one that um, they're going to be, um, um, it's going to be settled. And, you know, shareholders are going to get some measure of what they want. You know, not all of it, obviously, because... That's what happens when you. Um, that's what happens when you settle in court, right? No one gets what they want, completely. So, but, you know, getting seventy percent of that or eighty, it's still going to be a really huge win. So, that's where that's where I am. That I stayed. I, you know, I haven't. Nothing's changed in my outlook on the preferred versus the common or the outlook form. I think the timeline's getting shorter. I think if Calabria wants to. You know, Biden has already come out and said that he's going to replace him. If he wins, so you know, Calabria, you could argue that his time frame now is basically until November of this year, right? Then he's it's a coin flip of the election. We don't know who's going to win, and I think if you know the election four years ago proved anything, the polls are meaningless. So you know, we're not going to know until the night. I think was it the fifth this year, something like that. Uh, we're not going to know that night what happened, and you know, I, I for one, I'm not going to really be putting too much weight in any of the polls or any of the pre-election stuff. Um, simply because, you know, it's it's proven to be too wrong too many times. So, that being said, um, I, I you know, so depending who you think is going to win or he has the odds on favor, if Calabria is or isn't going to be there, he needs to put the GSEs on a track that can't easily be reversed if he's thrown out, right? If Biden comes in and says, here's my new guy here, whatever's going to happen in the GSEs has to be set in motion when he can do it. When he has a friendly Treasury Secretary that will sign off, because you can, I can guarantee you, if Biden wins, Mnuchin's gone, right? It's going to be probably that old Larry Summers and that old Clinton crew that are going to come back into Treasury. And whether no matter what you think about that, is whatever. But um, you know, Calabria has a cooperative Treasury right now, and a cooperative President that will probably sign off on something like this. So, you know, now is the time to do it. Now is the time to get it done before these elections, because if he doesn't do it. And, you know, he loses and Biden starts putting the team together. You know, anything that uh, Calabria tries to do, he's going to put the squash on it. So that being said, I think the timeline is getting a lot shorter, you know. Um, So we see, you know, I think, you know, I think people, if people look back uh, until January, um, if you just looked at the economy and the way things were going, pretty much looked like Trump was a shoe in, Um, you know. Typically, incumbent presidents don't lose elections when unless there's a recession. Well, now we have COVID and all this stuff happening, and you know the 
large-scale unrest and stuff like that. So I think, um, you know, whatever the odds were in January, they're significantly lower now. Um, you know, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, the economy isn't as strong as it was in January. And the economy tends to rule what happens in elections. So, you know, what happens between now and you know, probably October, if we're being honest, um, is really going to determine a lot of what happens, I think, in the election. So I think it's going to come down to the next six months. I think if you had to... <coughs> I think if you, if you had to... If everyone voted right now, I think it'd probably be a coin flip. So we'll see what happens. Um, so I don't, I don't find the interview depressing. Whitney just has a different take on it. Um, it's not shared by a lot of other investors. It's not shared by the, you know, Perry Capitals and the John Paulson and... Um, Bruce Berkowitz and others who are in the preferred stocks um, of the GSE. So it's you know just a different investment outlook. That's all. I, you know I think the common stock absolutely has much more upside than the preferred. But I mean I think that upside is after everything's settled and converted and whatever. So I think you're going to get the same upside. My thought process is. I have my preferred stock. I can convert it at, you know, 75, 80, 90, 100% a par. So my, what's it, what are they at? Like 15, 18 buck preferred, $50 preferreds go to 50. Then we get convert or some measure of it. Say they go to 40, whatever. Um, we get converted to common. Then you have the common upside down the road. I think that's how it plays out. So I think owning the preferreds, you get a little bit of both of that. Um, but that's my guess on how any kind of, um, restructuring or any kind of recapitalization is going to go. So, you know, again, it could go completely differently. I don't know, but that's that's my take on it. Um, this is a long question. Why do the GSEs need 180 to $240 billion for a capital buffer against future calamities before they become privatized? The Fed bought $1.3 trillion of mortgage-backed securities in three months alone and has plenty of ammunition left. The Treasury wrote every mortgage-paying American a $1,200 check to make sure they kept paying. The SBA donated the $600 billion, PPP. Um, uh, da, 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 da. I mean, who cares about $240 billion capital buffer to ostensibly protect, ostensibly private GSEs? Does anyone really think these things won't always be backed up by the government? Why are we kidding ourselves that their delimitation ratio is 6% even through the crisis? Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, well, I mean, so yes, in a way, in in a way, you're right that the GSEs are always going to be backed up by the government, right? Because they, they are the largest uh, financial entities in the world, right? They are. I mean, the, the Fed's obviously bigger, but they're the largest publicly traded entities in the world. Um, are the GSEs? So they will not be allowed to you know, default on their liabilities and stuff like that. Um, so yes, that will is true. Um, but that being said, because they are quasi-private entities, that they need to have a capital buffer, just like the banks do. Um, and all that does is give people confidence in investing in them. Because I think we all know that if the government has to come back in and rescue the GSEs, then they'll probably just put them in receivership and just nationalize the entire program, and which so that they'll never ever have to worry about it again. And depending who is in the White House, if that were to happen, that's a very possible scenario, right? Fuck it, let's just nationalize these things. We're doing it anyway. 
We never have to do it again. Take the debt on the balance sheet, you know, raise the debt ceiling, do whatever. And, uh, you know, the reality is it'd be a nice little revenue producing entity for the federal government. So, um, so there's that, but they do need to have a buffer and because they're traded, because that gives private people confidence in investing in them. You know, Berkshire Hathaway, all insurance companies have capital buffers. All the banks have capital buffers. The GSEs are going to be no different um, than that. And yes, if, you know, your large financial institutions, and then this goes for the banks too, they're always going to be bailed out because the, 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 um, the flip side of that is just too ugly to imagine, right? You can't have J.P. Morgan or Bank of America go under. You just, it just can't happen. Um, you know, it was bad enough when Washington Mutual went under, and they were a fraction of the current size of Bank of America and J.P. Morgan and, uh, and those others. So um, it, it is a bit of a, a game. And as to all the rest in there, yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to agree that, um, you know, but I guess it's no different, right? The government's going to bail out taxpayers during downturns. Um, they're going to keep the mortgage market going because they don't want the housing market to collapse. So they bought, you know, mortgage paying bonds to keep liquidity there and to lower interest rates there. And, you know, the interest rates are at all time lows for the mortgages to stimulate that market. So, I mean, it's it's a bit of a politically orientated question and it depends on how you look at things like that. But, you know, the fact of the matter is finance companies, especially large ones, need to have capital buffers against future losses, recessions, etc., um, and the, the but and the reality is the <clears throat> amount required isn't completely insane. Um, it's just based. They need that much based on the size of these entities, right? It's you know it's not you know a hundred billion dollar market cap bank. <laughs> it's you know it's several times that. It's probably over. You know if you were to value the GSEs, you know outside of this, they'd be a very very valuable organizations. So I mean. Their asset base is so immense, they have to have large capital buffers. I, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. And we have another trillion dollar stimulus package probably coming down the road, infrastructure and whatever. And so, you know, at the end of the day, with $240 billion that are just going to go sit in the bank. But uh, it has to be done, so... Uh, J.P. Morgan thinks crude oil could hit $190 by 2025. What's your take? Um, I think 190 See, here's the thing. There's oil fundamentals, then there's oil prices, right? And we all know that oil tends to swing well in excess of the current fundamentals. So, you know, um, could it hit 190 a barrel? Sure. Will the fundamentals, do we think the fundamentals are going to justify that? So it would take a pretty big supply disruption or a really surging global economy um, to create the supply demand imbalance necessary to get prices up to 190. Um, you know, could I see 100 to 125? Yeah, I can, I can envision that. And I don't think that's an irrational take on it. Um, there's been a lot of production that's come offline. There's a boatload of long-term projects that were canceled and like deep water drilling stuff um, not just in the u.s but around the world so um you know absent the frackers in you know in the u.s uh future online deposits of oil uh that pool of potential deposits has shrunk significantly 
in several countries in several areas. Um, so if there is a supply, supply disruption in, in one area and there's a corresponding increase in global demand because the economies, then yeah, you could get an overreaction and a spike higher uh, than that. But I, I think the fundamentals will probably justify oil around 100 in the next five years, uh, maybe a little higher. And again, but you know, predicting five years out is it's really a fool's game. Um, but you just kind of look at trends and you can kind of figure it out. So there's going to be a lot that happens between now and 25. And I think 2020 really is proof of that, that a lot can happen in six months uh, that no one's expecting. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it hits 190. I think 100 to 125 is pretty reasonable. Uh, and that's, you know, that's double, triple what it is now. So uh, it's it's not a bad not a bad outtake and you know there's also also you know with oil at that price there's a boatload of operating leverage within the and en- the energy complex uh, where a lot of that price increase would go straight to the bottom line. And energy companies have gotten pretty lean the last four or five years, and you know the current climate's going to shake out a little more the uh, the bad players or the less efficient players. Uh, so uh, if oil prices hit that level. Uh, there'll be a lot of uh, pretty impressive margin expansion at the oil companies. So that's something to keep in mind, too. Um, many online news articles say Chesapeake Energy is bankrupt and stockholders going to zero. Uh, what path do you see for stockholders going to be? If they go to Chapter 11, the common stock will be worth a zero. Um, the bonds, that depends. Um, we did buy a couple of the, the bonds, two or three cents on the dollar. Um, kind of a lottery ticket kind of thing very very small position uh, but if it wins it turns into a small position instead of very very small and but it turns into a small but very profitable position very quickly so uh, we'll see what happens um, you know they've been calling for chapter 11 for Chesapeake for two or three weeks um, hasn't happened yet uh, Chesapeake got uh, permission to stop drilling on some federal lands and not lose the leases um, that's not specifically Chesapeake, though. A lot of oil companies did that and were granted that by the government. So it's not a, a um, it, it was made to look like a very big event when it was reported. But um, a dozens of oil companies applied for um, waivers and were granted waivers by the government to stop drilling on certain federal lands and not um, lose the leases on those lands. Um, so, uh, but that, it's helpful because it reduces CapEx right now. You know, oil prices are recovered pretty quick. Um, so maybe they keep going higher and Chesapeake gets a lifeline. Who knows what's going to happen, but, um, again, it's a highly speculative position at this point. Um, yeah, so that's, I guess that's where I am with that. Uh, any comments on the hires by the GSEs? Yeah, I mean, so the GSEs hired J.P. Morgan, um, was hired as an advisor, which is amazing as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there probably is no, um, outwardly capitalistic bank, I guess, the J.P. Morgan, uh, straight down from Jamie Dimon, uh, the CEO. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I really, really was happy with that, that hiring decision um, to hire J.P. Morgan because it's, it, it, I don't know what the best way to say this is, um, you know, for those of us wanting an economic solution, not a political solution, um, and the GACs to be set up, and for the different 
tranches of stakeholders and them to be treated as they should be treated based on, you know, FINRA, no, I'm sorry, um, based on FDIC and previous banks and, you know, the, the basic outline they have from other times this has happened to other institutions. I think hiring, you couldn't hire a better outfit than J.P. Morgan to get that accomplished, right? Or to push for that or to guide things that way. Um, you know, so I, I was thrilled at that. Um, you know, I don't see a ton of downside to it. Um, you know, even during the crisis of, uh, um, the, the, you know, 08, 09, and banks were being force-fed money, uh, you know, banks were begging for money from the government. Uh, J.P. Morgan was forced to take their money. You know, Jamie Dimey didn't want it. So, you know, this is not, this is, yeah, I, it's just, I think it's, I think it was the perfect hire if, you know, if you're looking to accomplish what we're looking to accomplish in this, um, you know, they have both the, um, the inherent traits in the organization, uh, to, to want that kind of a solution and the balls to stand up to government and say, this is what we should do and to be very vocal about it. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that. I'm happy about it. You know, I, I think it's a pretty, you know, Jamie Dimon has a lot of respect in government, so I think, you know, rather than hiring some sort of a hedge fund or a smaller firm to do this, I think hiring, you know, arguably the best-run bank um, or one of the top two best-run banks in the world um, to do this, I, I think, was a really great thing. So, um, let me see. I don't... There weren't a ton of questions, and I think people are probably... Um, probably a little tapped out on some things right now but yeah so that's looks like that's all i got um oh here's one here's a question on the outlook economic outlook so here's the thing the economy is coming back quickly it's coming back quickly because everyone's, you know, all the unemployed people are getting the unemployment plus 600 bucks a week. So a lot of people are making more money uh, right now without working than they were. Um, I don't, you know, I think this, I think the, the costs and effect of what we've seen and what's happened um, is going to be played out over time. I mean, there's, there are a lot of small businesses that are gone and gone forever and never coming back. And there's going to be a cost for that because these small businesses, I mean, they're really the drivers of that, you know, 15 to $20 an hour job um, that those people are sitting on unemployment right now collecting their money. Uh, that's going to run out and those jobs aren't going to be there. Um, you know, I, I know business owners who are open, who are open part time and may actually close because they cannot get people to come back to work. When you pay people to do nothing, there's a large percent of the population that will happily take that and do nothing. When you make doing nothing more profitable than going out and working, people will choose nothing. It's, an, it's the economically rational thing to do. And they're doing it. So, you know, obviously we're going to show Q2 is going to be a mixed bag. 
you know, Q3, assuming we don't start shutting things back down because of the, the protest surge, right? I mean, you know, people want to blame the surges on states that have opened up, but let's be honest, millions of people around the country were, for about a week last week, gathered together with no masks on, screaming and sweating and bumping into each other and rubbing all over each other at these protests, and now we have another outbreak of COVID. Go figure. I mean, it's... To me, it's common sense, but the media wants to portray it a different way, I guess. So it's whatever. But the fact of the matter is, you know, do places start shutting down again? Is there going to be another government aid package? It seems as though they're discussing another one, a larger one. Um, I disagree with the aid packages being um, geared towards consumers because it doesn't do anything. Right, it gives consumers some short-term money, but then the jobs that they want to go back to when the money stops playing aren't there anymore. Should be a lot more aid for small business, and, and you know, obviously, yeah, it was going to hear the stories about Walmart got whatever millions of dollars, whatever they got, um, and other large businesses got whatever, and you know, a lot of small businesses didn't get anything and went under, and it, it's true, it's happening. Um, you know, I don't disparage large corporations from getting the aid if they followed the guidelines and if they didn't lay off people and if they kept people on and used that money to pay wages, then you know what? I think that's a good thing because that means those jobs will stay. And when the economy opens back up, there's people who are going to get employed and more people will be employed there. If those businesses are allowed to basically go down to bare bones, cut staff to the bare minimum, people stop going because the stores are a shit show, they're not clean, whatever the deal is, then those jobs disappear. And for the short term, yeah, this is great. But for the long term, it's bad. People are always complaining about the, um, you know, the death of small business and things like that. Well, you know, when the government steps in to small business owners and starts paying small business owners employees more money to not work there, and the small businesses can't get people to work for them, if you can't get people to, to, to work at your restaurant, you can't run a restaurant. It, it, that's, that's it. It's, it's, if, if you're selling something online and can't get people to come in and pack boxes, that's one thing. You just stay up all night and pack boxes or do whatever. But if you have a restaurant or a customer service focused business and you can't get people to come work, if you're, if you're, if you're an electrician or a carpenter, and you can't get people to do things to help you, and you can't do the projects you're contracted to do because of that, you lose the job. That job disappears. And the effect of that and the long-term effect on that really um, isn't going to be known for some time. And I've said it before, and I will say it to the, to the end. I believe that the, the cost of these lockdowns what the lockdowns did um, is going to be far greater than anything they allegedly solve. At the end of the day, if you're under 70 years old and in relatively good health, this is the flu. Nothing more, nothing less. Half the deaths in my state were in nursing homes, the most vulnerable population. I do not believe you had to lock everyone down, take the most vulnerable people, segregate them, lock them someplace safe, limit visitations to them, the rest of the world could have continued on just fine and everything would have been good. 
but there's been a lot of economic destruction from these lockdowns. I think the level of um, activity in the in the riots and the protests we saw last week, I think the level of intensity of them is, is also correlated to the fact that people were locked in their homes for too much. And you can't do that to people and not have negative effects. And we, I said when they locked them down, the, when they first started locking people down, I said it was only a matter of time before we saw large-scale civil unrest that something was going to happen, something was going to light a spark, and we were going to see bad shit riots all over the place. And that's exactly what happened. And that's not any great prediction. That's just understanding human human psychology and how human beings react to things. You, you, that, that what's played out here over the last month has played out in countries after country after country in history. It's just it's just what happens, and if they do it again, there'll be something else that happens. And you know whether it's a uh, whether it's a, a a cop incident or, you know, just some guy or some woman or does something crazy someplace, and we'll be back at it. You have angry people getting paid to do nothing. They're going to go do what they want to do. So, I'm, I'm concerned about, so if I had to look into the future and answer this question, I would say I'm concerned about Q3, Q4. Um, you know, when we start getting data on um, the number of small businesses that just aren't going to come back and the number of those jobs that are permanently gone. Um, I think that'll be a tell a different story. You know, uh, people who are doing, you know, well right now, there's been a lot of people skipping rents and mortgages payments. Uh, you know, those payments are still due, um, but they're skipping them. So, you know, at some point, that money has to come out of the system and flow back into those, those entities, right? Um, it's not going to be spent, uh, you know, Restaurants and things like that, the few that are open. So, I mean, I'd say I'm, I'm very concerned about certain things in the future. So as I look at our portfolio, I want to have things that are necessary. You know, the pipeline companies are necessary. Um, you know, Bank of America is necessary. You can argue Apple's not necessary, but honestly... Apple and their devices and the things you do with them, that's pretty much how people are functioning through the world right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad we don't have any retail names, retail clothing or restaurant names. Um, I do think that, I just think there's a lot of upheaval coming. Um, I, I'm not one of those who subscribes to a, this is a permanent, you know, I almost call things the new normal and, you know, a, a permanent, shift in the paradigm if people are going to want to start making those you know dramatic statements and I, i'm not i don't usually subscribe to those and i don't think it's true people will do what people do and what they've done through history and they'll eventually go back to that whether it's one month six months or a year i don't know but we've had um pandemics before in other nations and things go back to normal and think people feel safe um but i well, I don't think there's going to be some sea change in human behavior for the rest of our lives going forward. I do think there's going to be some, not long-term, but maybe like mid-term disruption. 
um, and how things are done and, 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 you know, and a lot of it's regulatory induced and government induced, you know, uh, opening Vegas, but then making people sit six feet apart is, it makes you feel good, but it's stupid, right? You look at Vegas, you have three people at a table sitting six feet apart and you have a hundred people walking elbow to elbow through the aisles. I mean, it's so fucking stupid. It doesn't solve it. It's like it, I had a boss. It was, this was a great quote. and uh, I had a, a, a boss once who called stuff like that mental masturbation. It's things that you do to make yourself feel good that you're doing something, but you're really not doing anything. Right? I mean, look at the videos. Same thing with restaurants. You have, you have people sitting six feet apart, right, outside of the restaurant, inside a restaurant. Then the sidewalks are filled elbow to elbow with people. It's like... You're not doing anything. It, it, you know, I guess, I guess my, but once you leave your house, you cannot social distance and be safe from the virus. That, that's really your option. Stay at home or accept the fact that you're going to be exposed to it. But, you know, you take a cab, take a bus, take a train, do anything, you're exposed to it. Go to a restaurant, you're exposed to it. Walk down the sidewalk, you're exposed to it. It's just go through a drive-thru, you're exposed to it. Right? Look at the drive-thrus. They're not changing their gloves if they're, wearing, if they're wearing gloves every single time they go through a drive-thru. So they're handing people stuff all day. Taking money, taking cards, giving them stuff. The drive-thrus are packed all day long. You want to tell me that coronavirus isn't being exchanged through those, to someone through those transactions at some point? Are we, are we just deluding ourselves that much to think that? No. If you leave the house, you accept the fact you're going to be exposed to it. If you don't want to be, stay home. That's really your option. But that being said, these rules about restaurants only having X number of people inside or gyms not being open or whatever, that's negatively affecting those businesses long term. And it's not doing any good for society, for people or whatever. This is my opinion. It's not doing any good these partial openings and stuff like that it's just it's it just makes us all feel good oh this is what we're doing it's going to be so helpful and if you look if you just look sit back and look the next time you're at a restaurant sitting outside just sit there and look right you you walk into the door to a restaurant you're greeted by a hostess who walks you to a table you don't no one walking six feet apart if you're waiting in line if you're waiting for something it's just it's just it's just foolish you know you got to stand six feet apart to get inside a grocery store right because you can't do the virus but then you get in the grocery store grocery store aisles are what three four feet wide so every time you pass someone in a freaking aisle you're within six feet but let's stand but let's yeah it's just it's just it's such it's just games it's just games it's just games and it's slowing the recovery down. It's creating destruction of permanent lo job losses and destroying businesses. And I don't think it does a damn bit of good. So that's why I'm concerned for Q3, Q4. I don't know how many businesses are going to open now and just not be able to make it. Because A, they can't get staff. B, opening at 50, 60, 70% of capacity just doesn't do it. Just doesn't cover the rent and the fixed costs that these businesses have when they just shut down permanently. So that's what I'm concerned about. That gives me pause. Um, so that's why, you know, that's why there's a, a decent part of 
Um, I don't. These are part of things I don't want to be involved in. So, and, and that list is developing. It's not a hardcore list, and it's just this thing I have. And obviously, I'm just waiting on um, waiting on data. You know, I could be completely wrong on this, and but the data is going to let us know. So, um, you know, that's my that's my concern going into reading the data. So that's how I'm reading it, and um, obviously, it's going to be updated as things evolve and as things go through this structure as things open back up it's going to see but you know i'm not really concerned about the market and prices right now um, i'm more concerned about the fall i'm more concerned when companies start pre-guiding for q3 q4 next year um so that's that's where i'm at with that so it's a you know it's a i guess it's a work in progress is the best way to describe it so uh, so that's it for the podcast. Um, yeah, 35 minutes. That's about long enough. I don't want to bore anybody. So uh, keep the questions coming, please. Um, I know we're getting into summer now, and a lot of the kids are done with school permanently and things like that. So um, I expect the questions to slow down. People start vacationing, especially in those couple of weeks. But um, please keep them coming. I'm, I'm happy to answer them, and it, 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 it just makes the podcast. So I think it's a lot more efficient for everyone involved when uh, – um, when there's specific questions, uh, uh, what's on your mind, things like that. So have a great one. Have a great weekend, everyone. And um, if we don't chat before next weekend, I hope everyone has a fantastic fourth. Uh, I imagine, though, next Friday we'll do one. Um, just kind of update how things are going since we're starting to see things spike again. So we'll, we'll catch up and we'll chat then. Thank you.